Hi, Bill. This is Bill Hastings. He's an architect. 40 years ago, he was a student in University College Dublin and a keen amateur photographer. I tended to carry a camera around with me a lot and uh, so I would have taken photographs just as a matter of habit. Okay, so you have here? I have here a, a folder with the photographs. 40 years ago this November, one Friday evening, he took a bunch of photographs, right photos of a lock-in in Ireland's biggest university. The students the had taken period. over the building. In Paris, this, there was... It was very radical politics, you know, uh, students taking to the street and rioting. Uh, in UCD, that wasn't what happened. I mean, in UCD, there were meetings, there were sit-ins, right? You know, that, the idea of a mass meeting, that there would be a couple of thousand people at a meeting. That was, you know, that was new. <laughs> no, I didn't, no. Bill's photos show young men grinning uh, for the camera, wearing black suits and skinny ties, any version of John Paul, Ringo, George. Or else there seemed to be a sort of Parisian left-bank thing going on. Some of the girls wore berets and horn-rimmed glasses. Most wore miniskirts in what was the cold Irish winter of 1968. Flicking through the photographs because... Because it was during that winter term that the Parisian riots, the Prague Spring and Berkeley Anarchy finally came in some sort of shape to the staid and middle-class lecture halls of UCD, Ireland's biggest Catholic university, then in the heart of the capital city. There was UCD in the terrace, and then there was uh, what is now Government Buildings, which was then known as Marion Street. There was um, a whole series of academic institutions on, on, uh, on Dawson Street and on Kildare Street. There was the College of Art, which is also you know, associated just the other side of government buildings. Um, and then there was Trinity. So there was this um, continuous flow, if you like. Um, but also there was um, a pamphlet issued by uh, the then Archbishop of Dublin, um, John Charles McQuaid, uh, saying that the move to Belfield was uh, to the benefit of students and that this was to the benefit of their souls, not just their um, intellectual capacities. And <clears throat> he, there's a phrase in it somewhere about the city being evil, that it was, the city was a source of evil and that student young minds should be taken out of it, that it was a dangerous place. The students who smile back at his camera, looking so young and fresh, must now be in their 60s. I think what students discovered was that there was a technique for getting change involving just there being a lot of people. It always, people are always in silhouette. So our cue is very clear. These shots were only one example of many such events. And while there may have been thousands there, there was in reality only a handful of students behind it all. That's clappy. Uh, and there's one, then there's KM1, which is Kevin Myers. Uh, because as Bill flicks through his prints, a number of faces turn up again and again and again. Four faces captured in various poses by the photographer. Bill Hastings may not have been a radical himself, but he proved to be a very careful observer. These four were the leaders of UCD's Winter of Discontent, a handful of self-styled rebels inspired by their far cooler, hipper, wilder European cousins. But they were clever and ambitious, called themselves the SDA, the Students for Democratic Action. And as Bill flicks through his old photographs, Ireland's own 1968 becomes a little more real. That's Una there, Una with her berry. The wonderful thing about the 60s was this sense that we really could change the world. Una Claffey, art student, UCD, 1968. 
lots of people, of course, regard that as extremely naive, and I suppose it was the naivete of idealistic youth, but it was a wonderful feeling that you could actually make a difference to the world. If I'm, if I'm right, that's Basil Miller. You'll find out soon enough. I haven't seen him for, since then, really. Would never want to claim to be the, the first, yeah. I mean, uh, when I was a kid, I was probably looking askance at, you know, the exploits of Teddy Boys in O'Connell Street or wherever it was, the, all the kind of stories going around that they had razor blades in their lapels and so forth. Ooh. Uh, so, yeah, we weren't the first rebels by any means. Uh, I don't think so. Basil Miller, postgrad student, economic studies, 1968. But we were probably, certainly since the Second World War, the first to express it in an overtly political way. And, I mean, you know, we weren't kidding. We did believe we could change the world. Well, Una is, as you can see, wearing a sort of beret and uh, the shortish skirt and um, laughing, as is, as is Rory, who's pulling his forelock. It's a long time since he pulled his forelock, just like me, really. Rory Quinn, Final Year Architecture, 1968. And we felt... Una Claffey, myself, and Basil Miller and a whole lot of others felt, look, we're talking to ourselves, why don't we reach out to a wider audience so that nobody can come through UCD and not feel that they've been confronted with an alternative way of thinking and doing. And from that we decided that really what we would do is merge the Labour Party into a broad front organisation called Students for Democratic Action, SDA. Kevin Myers, um, looking as you can see here, that you can you can recognise this sort of the, the Kevin Myers sneer in this picture, but this one here is um, Kevin as a kind of beautiful youth. Yeah. We genuinely believed the world was on a cusp of a change. It's very difficult to believe this now, to understand this, to get a grasp. We actually thought the world was going to change. We thought what was happening everywhere else in the world would bring the existing order down. And we were, in our own minds, revolutionary. Kevin Myers, Pure History, 1968. So we, we gathered that October in, in Ursa Terrace, determined to cause trouble. That was the intention. So it was the winter of 1968 before May 68 came near an Irish university. The documentary on one this week looks at the unfolding of these events when it catches up with the rebellion's four main ringleaders 40 years on. The doors for the lunchtime concert will close in five minutes. Five minutes... Here in the foyer of the National Concert Hall on the 18th of November 68, Bill took his photos. Forty years ago, the lobby of the National Concert Hall was an extremely overcrowded lecture hall. This is where the radical SDA members masterminded the first student lock-in of the entire university. And that night was only to be the start of the trouble. The university, of course, is no longer there. It's long moved to Belfield, a huge campus in a suburban beltway on the south side of Dublin city. And 40 years on, the student ringleaders are now all in their early 60s. One of the founding SDA members is only a very short walk away, because just around the corner from the National Concert Hall across the road is Stephen's Green Park, and through the park, Kildare Street and government buildings. It's here in Doyle Aaron where I meet one-time SDA member Rory Quinn. University College in those days was located in four different centres. The main centre was Earlsford Terrace, which really was like a CIE train on a bad weekend. It was standing room only most of the time for pretty well everything and anything. Um, and it was a Paddy Kyo was the head porter. 
and Paddy Keogh give anybody a uniform and they assume additional powers of authority or so it appears. Uh, and Paddy sort of minded the gate of Earlsford Terrace, now the concert hall. And any young unfortunate woman who arrived in UCD with the temerity to wear jeans or a pair of slacks was immediately ushered out, cast out of the temple of learning as if she had sacrilegiously sort of offended the mores of dress, which was patently mad. But it was that there were those kind of petty uh, and not so petty restrictions, but they all combined to create a sense of dissatisfaction. Quinn became a Labour Party TD at 31, Minister for Finance during the 1990s. He has been leader of the Labour Party and is still the treasurer of the Party of European Socialists. In January of 1968, we decided that we would call a meeting called Student Power. A TV journalist whom I didn't really know because he was doing agricultural panels called Justin Keating came. And after our successful meeting, which was held in the Kevin Barry room in the first floor over the main hall of what's now the concert hall, um, and we'd a packed meeting, big, big attendance. And Justin gave me a lift home then uh, to Sandymount where I lived. Um, and he said, look, you're not going to connect with students unless you get into their pockets and their hearts and their heads. Uh, all three are connected and related, and you really have to start talking about things that matter to them. And we started then focusing on the things that really got up people's noses. Um, and uh, one thing led to another, and we organised and planned deliberately the first 48-hour uh, occupation of the School of Architecture in protest to the decline in academic standards. And that kind of galvanised an awful lot of other people and another, an awful lot of other students. Um, so when was that? That would have been in the autumn of 1968. So, so from, the, from the January meeting on student power right through the summer um, to the, the summer break and even at the end of the kind of May months, uh, the, the core of the leadership of SDA uh, were looking in at the context of an occupation of the university to provoke a confrontation with, with the authorities. He looks through Bill Hastings' photos. November, I think that might be myself, I'm not sure. It is, because look, there's a closer one. What do you think? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's me. I had a bit of hair. <laughs> Can you recall your nickname? I do. Um, it came out of frequent marches down to the United States Embassy over the Vietnam, Vietnam War. I was known as Ho Chi Quinn, after Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the uh, Communist North Vietnamese. There's another one. They're great photos. They're, well, Bill is a wonderful photographer. So they are, they are the three presidents. I probably look like that now to people of, of 22 years of age, but that was Professor Hogan, that's Tierney, and this was Murphy. But they were out of their depth. The, the senior staff, in every sense of the word, um, they were old fogies from another age. Um, their, their youth had been dominated by the Civil War and by uh, the 20s and the 30s, uh, by the church. In keeping with the time, we, we didn't want kind of leaders as such, although there are in any group natural leaders, but we had a kind of... People shared the meeting for a week and then moved on. It was that kind of rotating thing. I was doing the thesis during all of this as well, so it was, you know there wasn't much light left at the end of the day in terms of burning the candle at both ends. Um, Una was a powerful personality, Basil Miller was a very strong individual, very clear ahead. Um, Kevin Myers, Kevin Myers is a wonderful personality, has moved to the far side of Genghis Khan as far as I can see at this stage. 
By the time November came, the SDA were slick and politically astute. They had come a long way in a few months from their first march down Grafton Street. Basil Miller, myself and Una Claffey were having a drink in O'Neill's of Suffolk Street and somebody came in selling the Evening Herald. And um, there was a, a Maoist group in Trinity College and they had protested at a garden party held in honour of the King and Queen of Belgium. And the Evening Herald ran a real snotty anti-student um, article, how dare the students protest and insult these visitors, you know, who do they think they are, they should be. They should be back in their classrooms and studying their books and, and thank their lucky stars that they're, you know, in university, that kind of tone, whatever it was. Anyway, we took offence to it and we said, OK, we're going to do something, we're going to actually organise a march from UCD to Trinity in solidarity with the Trinity students who had been insulted. So we stood on the steps of Earlsford Terrace at sort of 2.30 and impromptu we just started a kind of like a, a cornerside preacher um, and people started to, to listen, etc. And we went and spontaneously a crowd walked down along the top of Stevens Green, down Grafton Street and around and into Trinity and up onto the steps of the dining hall. Um, but we learned very quickly, as anybody who's involved in street politics does, that you, you really have to know what you're doing and you have to know what the end point is. Um, and as John Hume famously said about street politics, the trick about street politics is to know when to come in off the street. Mm. Una Claffey lives alone in a muse on Dublin's south side. She's recently retired. Her last job was advisor to Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. It's her turn now to look at Bill's photos. Well, I certainly look an awful lot younger. It really was 40 years ago. That Gas is... Martin, these are the staff, obviously, Garrett, yeah. The 18th of November. Mm -hmm. I see you have a berry on you and a miniskirt. I had a miniskirt, yeah. And a berry? And my berry with my NLF badge print <laughs> pinned to the front of it. I still have the berry. Don't wear it so often nowadays, but I kept it. <laughs> what colour was it? Because these are black and white. Yellow. Yellow berry. Yeah. Okay. What's the N NLF? National Liberation Front of Vietnam. Yes, one forgets that these acronyms are no longer <laughs> meaningful. It's Kevin Myers. Kevin Myers and Basil Miller were probably the two brightest. They were the two people who came out of all of that in spite of all the... The time they spent on political activity, they came out of it with first-class honours degrees. They were exceptional. Um, and Kevin Myers, even in those days, wrote wonderfully for um, the SGA magazine that we used to put out in Aronia Gestetner. Was it called on this machine. Confrontation? Was yes, it, it was. I think I might have one copy still somewhere um, with, a he with a headline written by Kevin, Fenestral Frolics which was when the Academic Council, which was meeting in Earlsford Terrace, where there was a sit-down demonstration outside and they had to climb out through the windows. Um, and um, Kevin's description of that bore that rather imaginative headline. Yeah. So that's the Great that's the, Hall. The Great Hall, which, of course, is now the Concert Hall. Every time I go to a concert in the Concert Hall, I think back because... Um, uh, it was the centre of all the mass meetings, internal mass meetings, and ironically, it was also the place where we were all conferred with our degrees. So um, it was sort of, if you like, from one extreme to the other. You can see how crowded it is there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was huge. It was very small to begin with, 
But it really took off because I suppose in every country, um, the events of 68 had their own local resonance. I mean, in the States, obviously, it was the question of race and, and Vietnam. Um, in Paris, it was probably more ideologically left and, and challenging of the entire society, as it probably was also in Germany. In Czechoslovakia, of course, it was it was against the occupying Soviet power. Uh, in Ireland, it started off really around the conditions in the university because we were still in Earlsford Terrace and conditions were appalling. Uh, the place was grossly overcrowded. Uh, facilities were very poor. And there was a particular issue around um, the library. You know, this was a time when, when, when the world was in ferment. And the Vietnam War, it's hard to describe now just how big an impact the Vietnam War had on people. I mean, it was regarded as a war of enormous injustice. And, of course, it had all the elements to inspire idealism, if you like. There was the the David and Goliath nature of the struggle between the most powerful nation on earth and this small little nation, essentially a peasant nation, which had already defeated the French and was now well on the way to defeating the Americans. Um, and it was so disproportionate in terms of the force that was being used there. Uh, the use of napalm on a, on, a, on a mass scale where not only was foliage burnt, but people were burnt. The role of photojournalists and television in that war, which brought the war into everybody's living room. Um, I mean, the fact that the My Lai massacre became known. And I mean, it's very interesting that in subsequent wars, which the United States has been involved in in the Middle East, they've been very careful about the access they've given reporters to those wars because they learned that lesson. I mean, the riots in Paris were very graphic um, and the reactions of the police were very... Um, well, uh, depending on the perspective from which you come, but I mean, they certainly weren't gentle in terms of how they treated the students. Neither were the, gent the, the students gentle in terms of how they treated them. And maybe that's why the, 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 the events in Ireland of the 60s became known as, as the gentle revolution in UCD because nobody was picking up paving stones, but people in Derry were picking up paving stones uh, in the civil rights movement there. So that you had this real sense that the world was changing, that you could be part of that change. Um, just the whole system of control uh, that had been so much part of the 50s and previous decades was breaking down. I mean, it was as much, I suppose, a sociological change as it was a political change in many respects. By the end of November, well, the, the SDA had already proven that a small number of determined people could mobilise a huge crowd. There was also a certain nervousness on the part of the establishment, I think, because they saw what was happening. They, too, saw what was happening in other countries. I mean, this wasn't limited to Ireland in, in, from either perspective. And um, so during the winter of 68, while the SDA were running lock-ins, marches, calling meetings, their equivalents in Belfast University, Queens, were doing the exact same thing. Um, and people were nervous at things getting out of hand. And, of course, when... The civil rights movement really developed in the north. Now it was in its nascent stage in 68. But, you know, that whole issue became part of, of the student political movement as well. And to the SDA, just back after the Christmas holidays, a walk organised by Queen's students must have seemed like just another civil rights march. Four of us from the SDA went to the Burntollet March in, in January of 1969, Basil Miller, 
and myself, we hitchhiked up from Dublin and um, I've unfortunately lost contact with the other three at this stage. But we took part in the Burnt Toilet March, which was um, a bit of a turning point in terms of what happened in Northern Ireland. And I sometimes wonder if we weren't wrong to have done that because it was a very provocative march in terms of marching through loyalist areas and, of course, was viciously, viciously attacked by Paisleyites. In fact, I couldn't help thinking about it when I was at the Battle of the Boyne. But um, it was a hugely different issue. I mean, the repression of people in Northern Ireland was so much more serious than anything that was happening in the Republic. Ten minutes walk from the concert hall, just next to Doyle Aaron, is the National Library. And the particular pamphlet you're after is Confrontation, I think you said to me. Confrontation, Students for Democratic Action. Bound tight in a blue hardback folder are the last few remaining copies of the SDA's magazine Confrontation. And then it's Confrontation, it's dated the 16th of December 1968, volume one, number two. There's mentions of the march on the 19th of November, the mention of the occupation of the Great Hall that Rory Quinn was organising. There's Kevin Meyer's piece, and he signs himself Kamarov. So this is when the SDA were getting really confident and quite daring. It doesn't say the date, but they are talking about the occupation, which, and they talk about things like the liberated zone. In later editions, in March and April of 69, there's account after account of the SDA-led two-day occupation of the university. Kevin Myers and a couple of hundred others took over the, the offices in the, um, the National Concert Hall, which was then UCD. Amongst all this, a very small article reporting that four SDA members voted to join their Belfast brothers on a civil rights march in the north. Next stop on the old SDA list is writer Kevin Myers, married, living in a large house in the countryside with horses and dogs. Okay. I got these from Bill Hastings. You Spread over the coffee table are Bill Hastings' photos and photocopies of confrontation. Have you seen any of these photographs? No. All right. This is one of the first. This is like the Friday, the fifteenth of November in '68. Oh, yeah, I gave there it to. I, I gave. I said that all the. Councils in, in Christendom uh, would not solve the problems of UCD. And I was actually quoted in the Irish Times for saying that. Was Basil Miller scowling? Did you and Basil Miller get on? No. We're already with her. A copy of the December issue of Confrontation lies on the table. Many of its pages are dedicated to what was another of the SDA's attempts to bring the university to its knees. There was a, a group called the Republican Clubs who were uh, front for the Sinn Féin, and I despise them. They, they talk pagan gibberish, but I recognise they had a right to exist. And so we gathered outside the Academic Council and meeting, and we started chanting, recognise the Republican clubs, recognise the Republican clubs. Do you know how revolting it is to ask people to recognise something you despise? Well, that's what I was doing. So we blockaded it, we gathered outside, um, the meeting in, outside the Great Hall, and we wouldn't let them out. We wouldn't let them out, and we wouldn't let them out. And so finally they exited through the window. So you had these uh, older men um, locked inside a room? We did, yes, and we were playing on their bladders. Somebody got a ladder, and they exited through the window. It was wonderful. It, um, was, one, it was just 
so so wonderful to see we could actually get academics to do what we wanted. They thought, I think, they were being clever and outflanking us. No, we had made them leave by the way they didn't want to leave and in a most undignified fashion. Okay, but this is confrontation. Yeah. Do you obviously remember confrontation. Yeah, hours and hours and hours. You see, we didn't have proper... Um, to make. We didn't have proper printing things, and we had Gestetners and old-fashioned... People don't know what Gestetner is. It was a form of making copies of, from original texts, and it was very complex and very time-consuming and laborious, and we'd spend an entire Saturday putting confrontation together. Not very respectful, is it? Forty years later, Kevin Myers reads from his own piece written about that afternoon. So, um, by, so they exit by the window where they could all show the, each other and all the world what a stern gathering of sturdy souls they were. Cars were bared, teeth removed and last grimly defiant exchanges were made before Wobbly Limb was guided by Rumi Eye down, down, down to the depths below. It was a feat of unparalleled agility. Females were transported down the ladder with the help of burlier males not a common breed amongst the academic council, and graciously thankful sighs were delivered in return. Anyway, that's, that's what I wrote. It wasn't bad for a, um, a boy. It wasn't bad for a boy. Flushed with success, by the spring of 69, almost everything must have seemed possible, right down to a takeover of the university itself. We, we would have meetings, and I would be chairing meetings. I was a good speaker and quite a powerful one. So was John Feeney, so, so was Basil Miller. Uh, we could do things, we could, we could get an audience going, and, but we knew that we had to bring the university to a halt and we had to find a pretext. And the library was the pretext. The library was a shocking horror. It was a disgrace for any university to have a library as bad as this. You know, it didn't have enough seats. It took hours sometimes to get, get, to get a book and, and there weren't enough books. Uh, so we used that as a pretext, but we wanted trouble. And um, I remember meeting a, a Canadian student in, in Stevens Green, and I said, There's gonna, we're going to take over the university next week. Are you going to join us? And she said, no, why? I, what, over what reason? I said, well, there's numbers of reasons. There's government policy on the education. But I said, we will take it over. We just have to decide the pretext. And the pretext was um, held, decided on the meeting in the physics theatre in UCD, which we'd taken over, and we agreed that we were going to take over the university until there was action on the library. But the action on the library was not why we occupied the university. We occupied the university or the, or the administrative block in order to bring the university to a halt. That's it. We had to do it to get our ideas over. And th those of who led the thing were prepared to lose our university careers. We were. We were seriously prepared to lose our university careers. But we all said from the outset that there was going to be no violence, and then I realised what the mob does when students I had never seen involved in anything, who weren't involved in the SDA, joined in the occupation and started smashing doors. And um, property was stolen, and, and secretary stuff was stolen, and um, it was a, a terrible eye-opener about what people can do. That if you remove inhibition, the inhibition is removed from everyone, not just from those who believe, but those who don't believe. So that... We had this crowd of people over whom we had no control, and they scared us. We had the Phantom Crapper. We don't know who it was, but have you heard about the Phantom Crapper? There was, somebody went into a room, and, or a couple of rooms, and found somebody had been shitting all over the place. So that, that had to be cleared up, 
And then we had kind of vigilantes going around the place to make sure that the phantom crapper wasn't doing his or her business. And, um, but we agreed there would be no violence. If we couldn't get open doors, then we would just blockade the doors from outside. Somebody smashed down the doors. And we, we, we were suddenly surrounded by 100 students we had never seen before. It was coming up to exam time, exam fever, and, uh, and a, a great deal of excitement and tension and drama, and people were just oh, semi-hysterical. And suddenly we realised, you know, these things actually can get dangerous because you've suddenly not... Con you've told people there are no laws. And if you have beliefs, that's fine because you've got your own beliefs to act as a control. But if you haven't got beliefs but you've been told there are no laws, then you can do whatever you like. And it means... Smashing down a door or emptying your bowels, that's what you can do. But nevertheless, you went on for two days, didn't you? Two it? sleepless days, yeah. Two, we, 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 we didn't sleep the second night at all. No one slept because of concern about security um, and about what people might do. And I remember we gathered, those of us who, at the end of the, the, the two days, we walked down, went down to Beauty's and um, in Grafton Street, which is the other place we gathered in, and we went upstairs where, we, where there was table service and some people could smoke, and we ordered almond buns, and I always had Darjeeling tea and almond buns, and that's what I had at the end of the occupation. And we believed that that was it. We, the, the door had been open, and change would, would result. And then in the, over the next day or so, as we got over our fatigue, and we were exhausted two nights without sleep, uh, is exhausting. Uh, we realised that, in fact, uh, the, the momentum had gone, the initiative had fallen from our hands and had now been taken over by junior members of staff. And as it should have done. It, it was good that it did fall to the junior members of staff to change the university. Um, but the North erupted in August 1969 and suddenly I realised that everything we'd been talking about was irrelevant. I saw students who were dedicated to the principles of peace during the Gentle Revolution, as it was called. Um, months later, gathering outside the GPO in Dublin after the North erupted, and they were shouting, we want guns, we want guns. And that was the hypnotic cry r rolling through O'Connell Street that, that summer. We want guns, we want guns. You have guns to kill people. And suddenly I realised this wasn't about peace at all that the desire for peace wasn't as powerful as I thought. The desire for war was far greater. Um, if the civil rights movement had just been allowed to campaign as a civil rights movement, without trying to provoke Protestants, which is what the PDs did when they marched to Burn Tollet, they went through a Protestant area, which was a highly unstable Protestant area. Don't do that. Don't, co don't co go to coat trading in areas of sectarian sensitivity. It makes no sense to do that. But they wanted to goad Northern Ireland into uproar. They wanted that. I mean, I heard them talking about it. It appalled me. It terrified me. You are unleashing forces you know nothing about. I thought, actually, they knew about those forces. They wanted to unleash them. This is the terrible thing, the terrible truth. You know, the PDs, People's Democracy, or leaders of them, wanted to have social conflict. They wanted violence. Unlike the ones down here, we were Nambi-pambis, we were children compared to them. They had a vision, and that vision included violence. They wanted bloodshed, and they got it. By God, they got the harvest of bloodshed. Yeah, yeah. Political Studies Society. Do you recognise yourself? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I do, of course, yeah. Basil Miller, the fourth and final SDA ringleader. He's worked in newspaper sub-editing for many years and lives in a housing estate in a small town just outside of Dublin. Nobody had a plan as such. Got a phone call and was told that this meeting was going on, so I kind of rushed over and um, there were, whatever, three, four hundred people in a lecture theatre and the issues were uh, explained and discussed and everybody just put up their hand and said, yeah, and uh, off we went and did it right then and there. And what you've got to remember here is this is what's now the National Concert Hall. And as you know, when you go into the National Concert Hall, it's this uh, beautiful uh, open space. And the administration uh, offices were in a corridor off to the left. And there was a general uh, administration office, then there was sort of private offices and the registrar's office and the president's office. And basically we marched into this corridor and went into the public office and asked them all very, said, we're occupying the administration area and we want you all to leave. And they did. Everybody just left quietly and we did things like sit in the president's chair when he was gone and... Uh, Right, OK, we're running things now. But of course we weren't. It, uh, it was chaotic. Um, but at the same time, people worked together to, you know, achieve certain uh, things like to secure the area, the liberated zone, as, as we called it. Uh, you know, getting lockers and, and making a barrier in case they decided to call the police or whatever. Um, but you didn't get a sense of edginess. So like well, there was one thing. I mean, there, you know, you got to remember there were quite right-wing um, students in the college as well. And I think a bunch of guys from the medical faculty decided to try and uh, throw us out and launched an attack. But it was just like it was nonsense, really. It was kind of 20 people trying to expel 300 people from a place they had barricaded just wasn't really on. Certain memories are shared by all of the rebels, but 40 years on, some of their perspectives are now completely different. I don't know if SDA ever kind of formally decided they were in favour of this, but uh, we kind of said, right, it's on, anyone going? And uh, in the event, only four people went. And um, it was quite an interesting but rather horrific experience. When I look back at that one, I'm always amazed that nobody was actually killed in the ambush at Burntollet Bridge because you had uh, far more attackers than there were people on the march. You had a police force that was colluding with those attackers and had actually delayed the march uh, to allow um, the Paisleyites basically to set up their ambush. Um, and you had people with staves of wood with six-inch nails through them hammering uh, unarmed people just trying to march along the road. There were some um, quite serious injuries. And it really is, when I, when I think back on it, I'm just amazed nobody actually was killed. I just don't understand that. It's um, funny, though, that the revolution didn't happen down the south there with you and UCD. It happened up no, in the it north. No, it did, yeah. And um, even at that, and I don't think anyone there 
you know, they, they really didn't have the notion that it would get to where it, where it did. The other um, thing which happened that year, uh, some months later in August of 69, you know, at the um, whatever, one of the Orange Marches in Derry, which led to the famous Battle of Bogside and the establishment of Free Derry. And I can remember, you know, walking around the the borders of Free Derry with uh, some locals and having political conversations. This is at like five o'clock in the morning and you're part of the security detail um, to make sure nobody invades Free Derry. And they really, I did not meet one person from Derry who thought that it was anything more than civil rights demands and, you know, we are going to protect ourselves. It was um, a question of self-defence. It certainly doesn't get written about anymore, but, you know, you had such things happening as uh, the B-Specials, the RUC, driving up the Falls Road in Belfast, firing machine guns from armoured cars into people's houses. It was, it was quite unbelievable stuff going on and it wasn't started well it's not a question of who started but it wasn't it couldn't be justified by anything nobody had on the on the um the nationalist uh, side of the community had fired a gun at that point and yet you had uh, you know 0.5 inch caliber machine gun bullets literally going through the walls of people's houses and killing them inside and the same thing was happening in in Derry so uh, i mean who stirred it up? It wasn't John Hume. The lunchtime concert in the Great Hall is now over. A couple of hundred, mostly grey heads, it must be said, rise from their seats. It's 40 years on from the events in Bill Hastings' photographs, from the occupations and the sit-ins in the Great Hall, 40 years on from the Vietnam War, the Sorbonne riots, the civil rights protests in the States, even the war in the North is over, and the radical young students in Bill Hastings' black and white prints are now all in their 60s. We did believe we could change the world. We were over-optimistic about that, but we actually did want to completely get rid of capitalist society and replace it with something else. That was, that was shared by all the different tendencies within SDA, and, and um, so we were a, a revolutionary organisation in outlook, uh, even though we didn't actually manage to achieve anything like that. You're asking the question about um, the, the radicals of 1968-69, did they become part of the establishment? Well, you, quite clearly, yes. I'm in my early 60s, I come across contemporaries whose um, political motivation and founding experience was shaped by events in 1968. That's when they became politicised. That's when they found themselves at the head of the march rather than in the crowd. And that's why they're still involved in politics. But you see, you know, times move on. Um, I've always been a great believer in the Greek philosopher Herodotus theory of flux. You know, the river continues to flow and all things change. Thatcher changed everyone's opinions about the way that the economy, economy should be run. What I have really been surprised by is the kind of uh, period of Thatcherism has lasted. That surprises me. I didn't think it would be 
if you like, so easy. That's the story of the last 30 years, really. Um, failure to uh, get your due from that quarter. I went from being a political activist to being a political journalist chronicling my times to being an advisor to the then Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn. It's, um, that's pretty much full circle. When I see uh, chief executives taking on multi-million euro pay packets each year uh, and the rest of us are still uh, in five figures or whatever, like, there's nothing more to say, it's just a fact. Can't argue with it. There's a very, very fundamental thing, which is that you have to earn your living, or most of us have to earn our living. So um, being a perpetual revolutionary, uh, if indeed that's the, the, the word revolutionary is appropriate for those times, um, doesn't put bread on the table. None of us is known for our socialist radicalism anymore. None of us. Not one of us is on the fringe, um, in, in, on the impoverished fringe, um, calling for revolution. Nobody is. Okay.